All right, welcome everyone to Kabbalah and Coffee. It's great to see everybody. So I think we need to start the class by with a blessing and a, and a wish for only peace in Israel. And uh, I mean, we wish for peace everywhere. But we, we must, must, must be praying for peace in Israel. Um, and an end to the... Just an end to the um, to the to the bloodshed. The Rebbe said many times that Israel needs to do what it needs to do to protect her own citizens, to protect Jewish lives, and by being by by going about that the right way, it will not only save Jewish lives but also save lives across the board. So indeed, there is um, the desire is for peace and for no more bloodshed and uh, in the interim everything needs to be done to make sure that this um, this conflict is um, is, uh, is 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 set to stop and um, indeed lives are protected it's always difficult when we think about um, the Holy Land in the sense that we know that the Torah tells us that God's eyes are on the land from on the land of Israel from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. This is a verse from Deuteronomy, which means that there's a special divine protection on the land of Israel. And oftentimes, when the Rebbe was speaking to people who were concerned about the safety in Israel, the Rebbe would emphasize that Israel is the safest place in the world because by no other place in the world does it say that God's eyes are on the land. So the, the Rebbe's faith and the Rebbe's trust in God and in the Torah and in, you know, and, and in the Jewish people was, I don't have to tell you, you all know this by now, right? It was remarkable. And, and we should have faith in ourselves and we need to be strong and we need to take whatever action is needed to end the violence and to end the, 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 the ultimately the loss of life on both sides. I also need to mention, I mentioned this by the Kiddush yesterday, but I want to mention it again here on Kabbalah Coffee Sunday morning, that a few months ago we had Ari Sasher from uh, one of the chief engineers of the Iron Dome missile defense system. You guys remember that? Yeah? Okay. And he spoke about, and I was thinking to myself Thursday or Friday, like, oh my gosh, I should post it on Facebook or something to let people hear his message again because it's so timely. And then I realized that he told me we can't record it. He forbade the recording or the, um, you know, the, uh, the release of his talk. So I can't, I can't release it. But I will tell you, he didn't tell me that I can't share over what he said in my own words. And so that's what I want to do right now. So he said like this, the notion that, that a missile could hit a rocket or a rocket hitting a rocket, whatever, whatever the language is, whatever the precise language is, but that's something that's moving really fast should be knocked out of the sky by something else moving really fast. He essentially said that that is pretty difficult to pull off. And he said that the Americans were getting with the Patriot, what was it, the Patriot missile defense system, they were getting something like, I don't know, 30, 40, 50% accuracy on a good day. And that it had to be done in the desert because when, when everything fell, it just created huge amounts of damage. You can't have that in a residential neighborhood. Remember he said that for those of you that were with us? Okay. And 
Israel essentially created a system to knock rockets out of the sky, which is incredible, with 90% accuracy. And his point was, and I'm not saying it as humorously and as you know, powerfully as he said it, because he was actually hilarious, even as he was talking about this stuff. But I will tell you this. His point, what I took away from it at least, was that the whole operation, the whole concept is a miracle. The whole notion that this should work to this type of effectiveness is an absolute miracle. And we only, and unfortunately we have kind of the, you know, the stark reminder of the miracles that are protecting Jewish lives today. Because the reality is, take away, God forbid, right? No, no iron dome, and we can't even imagine the extent of loss of life, God forbid, that would exist in Israel, right? Are you with me on this? Hundreds and thousands, thousands and thousands of rockets. If they were not shot out of the sky, you, can't, you and I can't even imagine or fathom the absolute destruction and devastation and mass amounts of casualties that would have, that would have happened. Not to minimize all the casualties that have happened. And all the damage that has happened. I don't intend to, I'm not trying to minimize that. What I'm trying to say is that amidst all of this craziness, amidst all of this, this, this horror and this terror, we, we are experiencing just the, what I would say is the confluence and convergence of science and the miraculous, as Ari Sasher said in that talk. And uh, if we ever need to look at miracles in our times, we don't need to look too far. If you recall, he, again, for those of you that were with us for that evening, it was a Saturday night Cafe Chabad, virtual Cafe Chabad e event. Um, I think it was the last night of Hanukkah, or one of the last nights of uh, It was on Hanukkah, yeah. And he told a story about, there was a story that went around that, a, that, a, that wind blew a rocket into the sea. It was headed straight for a convention center and a big gust of wind came and blew it into the sea. And he said, who believes that that, that, that happened? And everyone said, yes, because who's not going to believe that you know, a miracle can happen? And he said, it's impossible because <laughs> you would need a 3,000 mile an hour gust of wind, which would have also destroyed the, conference the convention center at the same time. So basically, he said, that didn't happen. But a missile shot a rocket out of the sky. And that's even crazier, or that's also as crazy as a wind blowing a rocket into the sea. And so we have to be grateful for the miracles that we have. And we have to pray for peace. And we know, those of you that are taking the current JLI course, that peace happens on the ground when there's alignment on a spiritual level inside. When you and I are more aligned spiritually, when you and I are even thousands of miles away, when you, are, when you and I are more aligned spiritually, that has an effect in the very physical fabric of the universe to create literal physical blessings, including peace and, and, and all, of the, all of the blessings that we need on the ground. And so, as the Rebbe would always say, whenever there was any negativity in the world, any conflict, and certainly with regards to the land of Israel, the Rebbe would say, what mitzvah are we doing? Well, the Rebbe wouldn't ask. The Rebbe would say, put on tefillin, light Shabbat candles, um, come to Shul to hear the Ten Commandments. Bring children to hear the Ten Commandments and st tomorrow. And so I think that as we stand here in a, in a world where, and I'm sure you've been, 
I hope you haven't, but if you have, then you've probably seen just how things are being framed. I've never seen it so negative against Israel before. I've, ne I've never seen it to this extent. There's always been kind of an attempt to balance things out. Just, you know, you chalked it up to people trying to balance it out. But today, I mean, it's, it, it's, I've never seen it so one-sided. Never. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't, I haven't seen all, all of the wars, but I, I haven't, in my lifetime, I've never seen it so one-sided against Israel and against Jews. So, so what do we do here? Advocacy is good and, 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 and sending money is good. But we, ha we can't forget about the spiritual stuff. So whether it's putting on tefillin today, whether it's lighting holiday candles tonight for Shavuot, whether it's coming tonight to study Torah, whether it's coming tomorrow to hear the Ten Commandments, do a mitzvah. Do a mitzvah for Israel, for the Jewish people, for the world. Do a mitzvah for peace. Because the spiritual stuff has an effect on the physical stuff. And, and we have to be strong and we have to... And it, you know, a mitzvah doesn't preclude all of the, or doesn't excuse all of the other things that need to happen. We've spoken many times in classes about the three-pronged attack that needs to be taken. There's advocacy, right? There's um, diplomacy. There's, um, that's the first category, right? Diplomacy. There's physical strength, you know, military. And then there's spirituality. And all three need to be pushed. If you've been in my classes for any you know, length of time, you know that we've talked about how so often we turn against each other because we're like, oh, no, only prayer. Oh, no, only military. Oh, no, only Washington. And we need, but we need all three. We need all three. So if you can advocate, advocate. If you can, if you can physically defend Israel, physically defend Israel. And if you can do a mitzvah, do a mitzvah. And so as a rabbi, I'd like to encourage everyone to do a mitzvah. It's not only a mitzvah for Israel, it's a mitzvah for the world, it's a mitzvah for both sides, it's a mitzvah for peace. Mitzvah raises the consciousness. And please God, we'll end this. Famously, the Rebbe launched the tefillin campaign, which is still going on today, that to go out there and help people wrap tefillin shortly before the Six-Day War. And the Rebbe said, you know, dangerous times are coming, you know, we need, we need to do this mitzvah. The Rebbe was also very strong about, you know, always advocated that children, based on various verses, including based on the story of Purim, you might know this story, the, the Talmud tells us that Haman, Haman was walking, right after he made his decree, he was walking down the street and he met three Jewish kids and he said, what did you guys learn today in school? You know the famous question that adults ask kids? You know what the famous answer is always? Nothing. But these kids had an answer. And they cited words, Altira, Mipachar Pisaim, Mishaz Rashan Kisavai, Utsu Eitza Vesufar, Dabra Dabra Vilayakum, Ki Imanukel. They basically, etc. They, they said the three lines that we say after, after the Aleinu in the prayers every morning, they said those three lines, which essentially say that we're not afraid because all of the plots won't come to fruition. We trust in God and God will deliver. And when Haman, when Haman heard this, he knew he was in for he knew he was uh, he was in for trouble. And the Rebbe says it's the power of children and the Torah study that they do, and so and the Rebbe also advocated on Shavuot that everyone, man, woman, and child should should listen to the Ten Commandments on the anniversary of that experience at Sinai when everyone was there. Men, women, and children were at Sinai. 
they need to be listening to the Ten Commandments on the anniversary of Sinai. And so I think, I, I would humbly suggest that everyone make an effort to listen to the Ten Commandments, that everyone encourage others to hear the Ten Commandments, and especially to bring children to hear the Ten Commandments. There's something about the purity of children and Torah study, and even if they're too young to understand the words, if they're a baby in the mother's arms, still there's power in the purity and the innocence of children to bring about the transformation. Mordechai gathered thousands of Jewish children to study Torah publicly, and that's spiritually what helped with the story of Purim. Anyway, I'm saying various suggestions. I think it's important for all of us to take a mitzvah, to take a few mitzvahs, and all the other stuff, but actually run with it. As far as on a practical level here in Atlanta, you can join us for our morning service tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock with a Torah reading at about 10.30, 10.45 with the Ten Commandments, or 5.30 p.m. outside on the Beltline. You can show up, Ten Commandments, and there's even food. There's even food available, ice cream and pizza and dairy stuff. But please join and please encourage others to join. There's Torah study tonight at 10.30 p.m. Either way. I'm not, you know, at the end of classes, I'll sometimes, you know, make announcements. This is not an announcement. This is a, this is a request for mitzvahs and a request for light in a world that is right now, unfortunately, um, not, not as bright as it could be for Israel and for the Jewish people, and really for everybody. Okay, so let's talk about Kabbalah. Let's talk about um, today's topic. Let's talk about talking birds. So many people are intrigued when they come across a bird that speaks. Many people find it very humorous when a parrot begins talking. I can tell you, myself included, I'm guilty as charged. I, I actually find it quite quite amusing and quite interesting when you hear a bird having a conversation. So in preparation for the class, because I knew this was the, the topic, and I'll explain to you why Kabbalistically this is the topic in a moment, but I actually Googled some YouTube videos, because what else are you going to do, right? If you're Googling a topic, so, you know, talking birds or talking parrots, and I found, like, really funny and cute videos of, uh, of, of talking birds. So, but along, along the lines of talking birds, I need to tell you a few jokes. All right, you guys ready? Joke number one. This guy walks by a pet, a pet store, and he sees a parrot in the window. So he walks into the pet shop, and the owner says, can I help you? He says, yeah, it looks like a nice, per nice bird. He's like, oh, this parrot doesn't just look like a beautiful bird. This parrot can talk. And not only can it talk, this parrot can recite Shakespeare. This parrot can recite um, poetry, the Bible. Everything. This parrot is extremely talented and bright. A memory like an elephant. And this parrot can delight you and, and share words of wisdom or words of humor, or words of depth. You're going to love this parrot. He says, how much? $1,000. $1,000. He listens to the parrot. The parrot actually is doing all these things. He gives it a test drive, right? The parrot is, is, uh, is, is speaking. Takes the parrot home. Oh, what a relationship. They're talking. They're schmoozing. It's fabulous. He's so excited that he teaches the parrot how to daven, how to pray. And as the high holidays are coming up, 
He teaches the parrot how to pray the Rosh Hashanah service, liturgy. He teaches the parrot the songs, the tunes, the melodies, the prayers, and the parrot is a genius parrot. Remember, the parrot knows Shakespeare. Now the parrot knows the Machser, the Jewish prayer book for the High Holidays. And the fellow is so excited that on Rosh Hashanah, he brings the parrot to Shul. And of course, you know, the bouncer, I mean, the, uh, you know, the, the people at the door say to the fellow, yeah, what's with the parrot? You can't bring a parrot into, into Shul. And the fellow says, listen, if this were an ordinary bird, I would totally be on board with you. But this is an extraordinary bird. This is not a bird like every other bird. This is a unique bird that can do things that other birds can't. Like, this bird belongs in shul and synagogue on Rosh Hashanah because this bird can pray. And when the chazan, when the cantor sings the tunes, this bird is going to be part of the congregational choir. That's how good this bird is. This bird knows not only the tunes, but the harmonies. And the fellow at the door says, I don't know. I mean, you, you sound very confident, but you know what? Meanwhile, there's a crowd gathering around, and they start placing wagers on this bird, whether or not the bird can perform, right? Because the, the guy at the door says, I'll let you in if you can demonstrate that your bird can do it. So now there's a whole betting situation on Rosh Hashanah in this joke story, right? A betting thing, you know, can it, can't it, will it, won't it? It's a big question, a big debate. There's money put down on both sides. Meanwhile, it's time for the fellow to, uh, to get the bird to sing and to talk and to pray. And so he says, no, go ahead, pray, Davin. Nothing. The bird looks around like a bird. He says, starting to get a little bit nervous, no, we practice this, pray, nothing, garnish, sing, nothing, Shakespeare, nothing, Any, no, not, not, not a word, like a bird just looking around, like a bird that doesn't speak. The guy at the door says, yeah, I suspected as much. The fellows collect their bets and... Uh, whatever, I know it's Rosh Hashanah, but maybe uh, theoretically collect their bets. And the fellow goes home embarrassed and ashamed. He gets home and he turns to the bird and he's with, uh, with tears in his eyes. He says, how could you have done this to me? Why did you do this? I know you know the prayers. And the bird says, can you imagine the odds we're going to get on Yom Kippur? All right. Can you imagine the odds we're going to get on Yom Kippur? So that's one. The second parrot joke. These are the parrot jokes that I know. The second parrot joke has to do with a fellow who goes into a pet shop, buys a parrot, talking bird, very, starts off very lovely, but soon the parrot turns on this fellow. And the parrot begins to mock and berate this fellow. You're lazy, you're a, you know, come on, what's with you? <laughs> Whatever, just like, you know, digging into him day in, day out. And like really pushing his buttons, knows exactly what to say to get him like all worked up and angry. Well, one day, this fellow is so angry, and I'm not advocating this, nor is this a real story. This is a joke. But even in a joke, I'm not advocating this. Nonetheless, this guy gets so frustrated at the, at the, at the, uh, at the parrot that he takes the parrot 
and he opens his freezer and he puts the parrot in and he closes the freezer door. And he's like, cool off in here. And the parrot was making a lot of noise before, but now the parrot is silent. He's like, finally, some peace and quiet in my own home. Can't think with this guy. Well, a few seconds go by and the parrot is a little bit too quiet. And he's thinking to himself like, whoops, like, did I do the right thing? Like, did I? He starts getting a little nervous. He's like, well, but I'm sure the parrot's fine. And then a few more seconds pass. And maybe it's only 15 seconds, but it feels like much longer for him. And he thinks to himself, you know what? Maybe this is way too dangerous and I shouldn't have done this. He quickly opens the freezer door and the parrot looks at him, very contrite and remorseful. And the parrot says to him, I apologize for everything that I've ever said to you that's ever been negative and for all the negativity that I have sent your way these past few months. I apologize. I will never do it again. The man says, great. That's great. The parrot says, but one question. He says, sure. Can you tell me what the chicken did? All right. Those are my parrot jokes. What did the chicken do? All right. Yes, the parrot was a friend. So the, again, we're not advocating putting parrots in freezers, just a joke, or maybe whatever. Hopefully, okay, let's get back to Kabbalah. So talking birds. Kabbalah uses a parrot or a talking bird as an analogy for the very purpose of creation. You're thinking, what? A bird being the purpose of creation? Hear me out. It says in Kabbalah, and this is definitely sourced in the Alter Rebbe's teachings, that just as it is with a human being that derives joy from listening to a parrot talk, so too God derives joy from us doing a mitzvah, doing the right thing. What's the connection? So I'll share with you the connection. Why is it that a bird can say, Polly want a cracker. I'm not going to imitate a parrot right now, although I'm like a little bit wanting to, but nonetheless. Why is it that when a bird says that, people like fall over themselves? Like, oh my gosh, look at that. Did you hear what the bird said? Oh my, and joy fills their face and fills their, their, their face lights up. And when an adult says, Polly want a cracker, we look at the adult like, Okay, sure, I guess. <laughs> like, what's up with that? In other words, a talking bird elicits, elicits joy and delight. And a talking person doesn't elicit the same thing. Why is that? Help me, help me understand. Unmute yourself and help me understand. Why is it that we get delighted when a bird talks? It's cute. Why is it cute? Because it's unexpected, it's out of the norm. Good. Because it's unexpected. In other words, we know that birds shouldn't talk. Or we believe that birds shouldn't talk. And when birds talk, it's like, whoa! Did you see what just happened? This bird just talked. That's amazing. I love that. It, it, it excites us. Because it's so unexpected. Because on some level, we thought that it shouldn't happen. So now that it happens... That creates delight. Whereas a person speaking, that's very much expected. That's not unexpected at all. In fact, sometimes we'd be more delighted if people talk a little bit less, 
right? It's like, delight me the other way. But a person talking doesn't in and of itself evoke delight. A bird talking, a bird mimicking human language? What? That's amazing. That's, I love that. So what's the, at the core, as Donna said beautifully, at the core is that which is unexpected happening. When the unexpected happens, well, I mean, not always is it a joyous thing. Sometimes it can go the other way. But when something cute, unexpected happens, it can evoke joy. The Alta Rebbe says, and it's sourced in other places in Kabbalah and Hasidic thought as well. But the Alta Rebbe uses this beautiful analogy of a parrot to explain why God created the world. Because God wanted, listen to this idea for a second. God wanted a world that is spiritually dark to do something bright. God wanted a world in which godliness is not visible to make God visible. God wanted a bird to talk. Tzipur Hamedaberet. It's a bird that talks. That's exact, the exact language of the Alter Rebbe and other sources, the founder of Chabad and other sources. Tzipur A bird that talks creates joy because of the novelty, of the chidush, of the novelty. How you're coming from a bird and ending up with human language it shouldn't be. It's, it's delightful. A human being in this world, in a world of darkness, in a world of spiritual darkness, in a world of concealment, doing something positive, doing a mitzvah, doing something light-filled, that's a novelty. That's a chidush. That's something unexpected. And that causes God immense joy. So God created this world to be a space that is inherently, I have to be careful how I say this. It's not, I was about to say inherently dark. The truth is it's inherently light. But it looks to be dark. Hashem creates it in a way that spiritually it's dark in order for us to bring out light and thus to cause delight for God, for us, Either way, it's unexpected and it's amazing. That same, that, that same level of joy simply doesn't exist in the higher realms. For an angel to do the right thing is expected. For a, a disembodied soul in heaven to do the right thing or to feel the right thing or to think the right thing, it's all expected. But for a human being to do the right thing for a human being of flesh and blood here in this world with all of the challenges and all of the negativity, all the darkness to do the right thing. Nonetheless, that's something that evokes pleasure and joy, the greatest type of pleasure, like the pleasure that a human derives from a talking bird. Unexpected. Didn't see that coming. When a person living this physical life does something to break through those limitations, to do something noble and higher and light-filled, that brings God the greatest joy. And that's exactly why God created the world. God created this world. All of the worlds right, ended up with this world. The whole construction process of creation ends up with this physical world. There's no world after it. There's no world lower than this one. 
So this is the end result of all of God's creation efforts. And what's the point of creating this? In order to have talking birds. Not that we're a sideshow, God forbid. Not trying to minimize that and make us be some sort of entertainment for God. But the core concept of that which is unexpected creates joy and a brightness and a, just a shift. That is something that I think you and I can appreciate every time we do a mitzvah. Every time we do a mitzvah. We're taking the stuff of this world. We're taking ourselves, who are also products of this world, and breaking out of the expected parameters and doing something unexpected in a good way. Something, something amazing. And that brings God joy, it brings us joy, and it brings light into the world. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So, we're going to go back, we're going to jump back inside the text because we have really a lot of beautiful ideas to read inside. And in the text, if you recall last week, if you joined us last week, you might recall that we were speaking about, we have been speaking about the notion of tzimtzum, the notion of contraction, divine concealment. Um, we spoke about this in the context of the moon being diminished, and that means kind of like the light being diminished and the world being created in a way where there's less light than it is above where there's more concealment, there's more spiritual darkness. We spoke about how Malchut, the lowest of the Sefirot, the lowest divine energy of the ten divine energies, the ten Sefirot, how it descends into this reality to give this reality life, and how that is it, Malchut itself, that dimension, moving away from its home, its place, to go into the nether worlds, into our lowly space, and how that is on some level, difficult for Malchut, difficult for the soul of the universe to descend from above and come into this lowly space. A space where the light that comes in is not even seen as divine light. A space where when we're all being powered by this force, human beings can say, what force? What are you talking about? That's how painful. Imagine, I mean, even think of a human example. Imagine you've been helping someone for years, every, you've been helping them at, at every turn. And then they express the notion one day of like, who are you? Like, I don't even know, I don't even know who you are. It's like, that would be painful, it would hurt. Right? That's, what, that's how Malchut, again, I'm, we're assigning a type of emotional uh, disposition to Malchut, which may or may not be fair, but on some level, we are saying that Malchut thirsts for what it had. Malchut yearns and pines for where it was. Malchut is pained by where it is. And part of that pain is the pain of separation, of being in a lower space. Part of that pain also is it's not even recognized as Malchut. The way it manifests, the way it, 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 it enlivens this world, the world looks at it and says, I don't even see it. What are you talking about? Malchut? God's energy? I don't know. Oh, you mean Mother Nature? Nature? Oh yeah, nature I know. God? I don't know God. So that's where we are. And then last week, that's what we explained, described a few weeks ago. And then last week we said, but you know what? All of this is worth it for the upside. Yes, the divine energy goes down, 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 down into a dark, to create a dark space. But you know what the upside is? That when you and I 
bring light into this space, now we have a talking bird. Now we have something amazing. Now we have an influx of light in a dark space, and that's more valuable than light in light-filled spaces. The light that's in the light-filled realms, it's no novelty, it's no chiddush, it's no, it's, there's no accomplishment there. But light in a dark space, when you and I create light, light born of and in a dark space, that light is valuable. That light is more valuable, more precious, more delightful, more joyous, more everything than any other light in existence. It was worth the investment, the difficult investment, to get this level of return. Because you can, as I said last week, you cannot get a huge return without a risky investment. This is the, ultimately, this is the ultimate risky investment. God's investment in this world. Because human beings can say to God or can just say, I don't know what you're talking about. We're doing our own thing. It's a risky investment, but the payoff is equally massive. Right? No pain, no gain. No risk, no reward. Well, there's no challenge to, um, to, that, to that happening. In other words, there's no challenge to... Um, there's no doubt that, that there's a risk, but there's also no doubt that there is a major, major um, return as well. What I'm going to do now is share my screen with you in a moment, and we are going to jump into our text. Let me just quickly take a look and see where we are up to. Yeah, here we go. Page 100. Okay. Do some screen sharing. That should be it. Okay, I, th I believe we did... I, I, I believe we may have done this top paragraph, but I don't remember for sure. So either way, I want to I pick it up from right here. Okay, here we go. By investment in a body... And, oh, sorry, we're talking now about the individual soul. So he said, just like it's on a cosmic level that the soul of the universe comes down into this world, putting itself in a difficult spot for the greater upside, so too it is on an individual level, the soul, the particular soul, leaves its source from on high to give life to a body for the light, for the upside that it can produce. So here we go. By investment in a body and performing its service, humbling the body and animal soul to be perfect in serving God, right? with the soul doing this, this causes a tremendous ascent for the soul and causes unbounded delight on high. That's the idea that I was speaking about today, about the talking bird, unbounded delight. It's, it's, the, it's the reason why we're here. It creates a great ascent, and it causes tremendous pleasure. It is written, we definitely did this last week, Tzchok Asalilakim, God has caused me laughter, Elohim specifically, and that means it is specifically through the name Elohim, which is permitting the existence of beings in all physical material world, that the divine light comes, the divine delight comes about. Right? It's, it's through Elohim, which is that the, the, the concealment, the divine concealment, the tzimtzum, that which creates physical dark matter, so to speak, it's specifically through Elohim that laughter can be born. Because laughter comes about when we pierce through the concealment that Elohim created. 
So he continues to explain, for everything comes from the name Elohim, as is written, in the, begin, in the beginning Elohim created. The animal soul too derives from the name Elohim, as explained elsewhere. It is man's labor here below. Right, it's our effort. This is our job. Subordinating the gross element of all material affairs, turning from evil and performing good in actuality, which specifically causes the divine laughter and delight. So what causes God's sorry, divine laughter and delight, really joy above, that is when we transform the darkness to light. When we take our soul, when our soul is able to pierce the facade of this world to get through to the body and the animal soul, to, tr- to bring light, divine light, into that space, or to reveal the divine light that is inherent in that space, either way, you, however you want to phrase it, it's, that is what causes the, the, the divine laughter and delight. Why? Again, it's like the talking bird. It's like, oh, look, a human being doing a mitzvah. That's amazing. That's, what, that, that's why the soul comes down here. That's, that makes all of the, of the journeys of the soul and all of its difficulty, all of its trials and travails, that's what makes it worthwhile. Those breakthroughs make it worthwhile, and that causes the greatest delight and joy above, delight that could ne- not come any other way. Now, let's continue. This is the new material. Let us apply this to Malchut. Malchut, if you recall, I mentioned this a few minutes ago, Malchut is the cosmic soul of the universe. So just like your soul gives life to your body, Malchut is the, is the divine soul that gives life to the entire universe, the created universe. So we can apply the same concept to Malchut as we did to the soul. So just like the soul comes down for the purpose of the breakthrough, so too Malchut it creates and enlivens this world for those breakthroughs. So let's go. Descending, let's, let's chart the journey of Malchut. Descending into Biyah, and I just want to explain what Biyah is. Biyah is an acronym of three words. B-Y-A. You ready? Bria, the world of creation. Yitzira, whoops. Yitzira, the world of formation. And Asiya, the world of action. Bria, Yitzira, Asiya. Biyah. So Malchut is above these created realms. These are three created worlds. We're at the lowest. We're at the A. The, we exist at the, the end of the A of Biyah. Not literally, but figuratively. Right? We are the lowest point of Asiya, the lowest of, the th- of these three worlds. The really four worlds, Atsilut, which is a spiritual world, is, um, a divine world, is, is the first. But that's so divine, it doesn't, it's not even created yet. It's just emanated. So but let's, 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 let's uh, follow what he's saying over here. So Malchut originates in Atzilut, in that higher realm. So descending into Biyah, into those three lower worlds, it purifies them. Right? Why does it come down into these worlds? Well, number one, to give them life, but also to give them the possibility for light. Right? By divine energy coming into these worlds, there's a possibility for something greater. This is comparable, he says, to the souls inhabiting the body, whereby it, on a good day, subordinates the body. In other words, gets the body in line with what it needs to do. Similarly, the investment of Malchut in Tabiyah affects the requisite purifications there. As it is written, Vatitin Teref Leveta. It says that she, 
This is referring to the Eshet Chayo, the woman of valor. She gives teref, spoils, to her household. So there's a, there's, a, there's a literal meaning of that, right? She gives spoils, like good things and whatever to her household. Fine. But there's a Kabbalistic understanding of this. Number one, who she is and what the spoils are and what the household is. So who's she? Malchut. Malchut is feminine. Malchut is the feminine energy. It's the Shekhinah, the divine presence that, that is imminent, that comes below. So she gives teref, spoils to her household. So what does that mean? Teref, tough reish, um, teref, tough reish pay, is numerically equivalent or numerically equals 288 plus the kolel, plus one. So, and I'm going to explain this in numerological terms in a moment, but I'll get there in a second. Meaning that through its descent, Malchut purifies the 288 sparks. So why does Malchut descend into Biyah? It's painful for Malchut. It has to go down into the lower worlds, into dark spaces. Yes, but it has an upside. Just like the soul, the individual soul, in in the individual body, there's a descent that is intended for a greater ascent, for a, for, to create divine laughter, divine delight, through the light that it achieves. So to the cosmic soul, Malchut, is all about the breakthrough, is all about the laughter, the delight that it achieves in its descent below. And what is that? Vatitein teref lebeta. She gives teref to her household. Teref is 288 plus 1. Malchut purifies the 288 sparks. So for this, for this, we need to do a little bit more explanation. Okay, so I'm going to stop sharing and let me begin explaining. Kabbalah teaches that there was a realm called Tohu. Now, if you've studied Kabbalah with me before, this very likely has, ha, has come up previously, and, and you're familiar with this concept. Before the world of Tikkun, the world that we live in, there was a world of Tohu. What do these terms mean? The world that we live in is called the world of repair. Tikkun means repair, like Tikkun Olam, repairing the world. So Tikkun is repair or correction. And tohu is chaos. So the mystics, led by the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, explained that in the beginning, sorry, before the beginning, before our beginning, there was another reality called the world of chaos. Now, why is it called world of chaos? Because the lights were big and the vessels were small. Every spiritual entity and physical entity has both light and vessel, body and soul, or soul and body. The lights of this world of chaos were too big, too volatile for its vessels. And so there's something that happened that we call in Kabbalah, Shavirat HaKelim, the shattering of the vessels, whereby the vessels of Tohu, the vessels of the world of chaos, shattered. So then what happened? Then the world of Tikkun emerged, the world of repair emerged. But in the world of Tikkun, our reality... There are the shards, the broken pieces of the world of 
tohu, the world of chaos. It's like imagine somebody drops a glass bowl onto the floor and it shatters and gets stuck in the, in the floor, all these little shards of glass stuck in the floor. That's a dangerous situation. But in our reality, this is the way it is. Not dangerous, it just is the reality. That the broken shards of the world of Tohu are embedded, are embedded into the very earth, the fabric of the material world that we live in, the world of repair. So we inhabit the world of Tikkun, the world of repair. But in this world are embedded the shards, the broken pieces of the world of Tohu. What are these broken pieces? They are 288 sparks. And the language, let me find it. In the language of Kabbalah, it's Rapach Nitzotzot. Nitzotzot. 280, Rapach is numerologically equivalent to 288. 288 Nitzotzot sparks. Nitzot, Nitzotz is a spark. Nitzotzot are sparks, plural. 288, a spark is a shard. A shard is a spark. It means not literally a piece of glass because Tohu wasn't a piece of glass. It was a world, it was a spiritual reality. So its broken pieces are sparks of light. Remember, it broke because the light was too big. So now you have these points of light that fell very low into the darkest spaces of our reality. It's like Kabbalah uses the example of a wall, a very big, a very tall wall that falls down. So the, 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 um, the stones at the top of the wall fall the furthest away from where the wall once stood, right? Just, just, um, just uh, you know, practically speaking, right? The, the lower stones fall closer to the base. The higher stones fall further away from the base. And so the higher something is, the lower it falls. That more lofty something is above, the lower it manifests or it, it falls below. So the light of the world of Tohu, the, the blinding spiritual that was too big for the vessels, those vessels shattered, the light is in those vessels also, and they now fall to the lowest of spaces in this world. The Arizal continues. I'm using the word Arizal, which is an acronym for Arizal, the great Ari of blessed memory, who is the great um, 16th century mystic of Tzfat of Safed, Israel. So the Rizal teaches that our job, literally, our avoda, our collectively, our job is to find, refine, collect, polish, reconnect the 288 sparks. Literally, that's why we're here. We're here on a seek and connect, not destroy, seek and connect mission. We find out, seek out the sparks and reconnect them with the source. And where are the sparks? Everywhere. Because these 288 sparks split into further sparks and further sparks and further sparks to comprise um, the mission that you and I have. Every single person has a mission of a certain number and certain a specific type of sparks or 
specific actual sparks that were intended to find and to reconnect. I'm going to explain what that looks like in a second. And that's literally why we, we, we go through life to the point that Kabbalah teaches, Hasidus teaches, that when you find yourself in a strange location that you weren't planning on being in, you're being guided by God because one of your sparks that you need to collect and, and reconnect is in this spot. And you would have never gotten to it on your own because how did you know where you need to be? So that's why you find yourself on a detour, on a, you know, you find yourself in a place where you didn't think you would be in. There's something, there's a spark there for you. This is all Arizal, Baal Shem Tov, classic Kabbalah and Hasidic interpretation of it. It's all classic sources. So, the key is, the world of chaos shatters, it falls, but think of like a big explosion and the pieces now, you know, jagged pieces going deep into the ground. Again, it's a metaphor, it's not literally. It's not literally a piece of glass or pottery that's breaking. But this light that filled the vessels and exploded, so now there's light in the vessel, it's too big. So these shards, these tremendously, these tremendously bright potentials of divine energy are found in the lowest of places. Like the, the, the easiest way to explain this, which is something we've done countless times, is with regard to food, right? So food, if you look at food, on the one hand, it's a very lowly experience, right? Animals eat also, fish eat, and humans eat. It's not an exclusively human experience. So it would seem like, you know, very, um, very mundane, very lowly. And it could be that experience also, but it could also be the most spiritual experience. There's a verse in Torah. This is in Deuteronomy. Man does not live by bread alone, rather on the spark of God, on the utterance, rather, rather on the utterance of the mouth of God does a person live. What does that mean? That when we eat, we have a choice. We can eat the food or we can seek the spark. Right? We can be into the food. Shavuos is coming up. Tonight we're going to have cheesecake. We have the most gourmet cheesecakes tonight. Unbelievable. A caramel cheesecake, a cookie cheesecake, a standard cheesecake for all the standard cheesecake lovers. Anyway, three different cheesecakes for your dining pleasure. So you can look at cheesecake and say, all right, that's a bit of an indulgent experience. Or, and work with me here, you can say, I know that the highest sparks, this is a very convenient um, uh, uh, um, learning experience right before Shavuot and Cheesecake. I know that the highest sparks fell in the lowest of places. So even though this looks low, I know that there is a tremendous spark here. And if I can use the energy. So, one second. I'm about to advance this narrative. So I just want to note that, that I'm advancing the narrative. What does it mean that you find the spark and then reconnect it? It means that you utilize this item for a higher purpose. That's exactly what it means. When you utilize something of this lowly physical world that has a divine spark in it, one of these offshoots of the 288 original sparks, when you take this physical item that has a spark deep inside and you use the item for something 
noble, something great, something majestic, you've now done what we call in Kabbalah, birurim. You've now sifted or separated, separated between the desirable and the non-desirable. You've, you've entered into an experience and you've said to yourself, I know what I can extract from this. I'm going to extract the spark and the rest I'm going to leave out. I'm into it. I'm going to extract the spark, the energy from it and utilize the energy for a mitzvah to stay up night, uh, tonight studying Torah, etc. Right? I'm drinking coffee to stay up. So I'm, I'm doing it for a higher purpose. So I'm extracting the, the core potential, the spark that's inside. And the other part is fine also, but I'm not, I'm not getting caught up in that. That's what we call avodat habirurim. That is, again, I'm giving you Kabbalistic terms, Lurianic Kabbalah, Arizal's Kabbalah. This is the idea of separating the spark from the earthliness that it's stuck inside. Again, our job is to find the sparks, number one, to separate spark from earth, metaphorically, number two, and to reconnect the spark above, number three. So our job is to seek and reconnect sparks, but that happens through discernment. What's a spark and what's not a spark? I have to know what's the holy potential here and what's the mundane shell. I have to know fruit from shell. It's like I told you this. My grandfather used to tell me the story of his father when he first came to the States, the United States, and he ate a banana. And he took a bite into the banana without peeling it. And he said... Never again am I eating a banana. And he never ate a banana again. He was so turned off by, by the experience, he never ate a banana again. That's at least what my grandfather told me. So you have to know what's the shell, what's the peel, right? And what's the fruit inside? Everything has a spark inside, has fruit, a spark, a good core inside. You have to know what's the outside and what's the inside. If you think the outside is the inside and the inside is the outside, that's a problem, right? If you think that this whole thing is just the surface, then you're missing the spark. You might be stumbling over it, tripping over it, holding it up to your face, to your eyes, and still be missing the spark. So it's not just finding the spark. It's not just using the item. It's identifying the spark and then lifting it up, utilizing it, for the higher purpose. And again, the easiest example is food. I know it's the go-to example, but honestly, it's go-to for me because in the books, that's the go-to example in Kabbalah. So I'm just, I'm giving you the original um, um, analogies or, or not even analogies, but, but um, scenarios. So you sit down to eat a meal. First step is mindfulness, right? Mindfulness. This food is not just here comes from a source. We could also be mindful about the rest of the process, but certainly about the ultimate source. The moment you say a blessing before you eat and you, you remind yourself that the food is coming from a higher place, that already hopefully sets your intention as you're eating, there's something in here, there's something in here that is divine. There's something in here that is holy. There's something in here that is godly. And so my, my, my gastronomical experience will not just be a physical one, it's going to also be a spiritual one. I'm going to identify the energy. I'm going to meditate. I'm thinking about the energy from this food as I'm eating it. I'm not just being sustained on 
bread alone, but on the word of God that's in the bread. Because I know that the energy that I'm getting is really the intention here. And that energy that I'm getting, I can now utilize for something good for the next mitzvah or the next piece of Torah study, as it were. So I want to make sure that, that this, this, this concept is not, uh, the example is not going to pull us away from what I'm trying to say here. Originally, there was chaos. Divine light, too much divine light. Vessels weren't strong enough to hold it. Shatters into two, originally 288 fragments. Those fragments are embedded around us in this world. Each one of us has a mission to find, see, collect, refine, reconnect the sparks. That explains, according to the Rizal, and that explains, according to the Baal Shem Tov, the journeys that every human being takes. We take journeys, and we don't know half the time why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing, you know, what. And the answer is, if you're here, you're meant to be here. If you're here, there's, some, there's a spark that needs to be uncovered. And sometimes we find ourselves like um, Jonah, right, being confronted with the same spark. And we try to run away. Let me go to Tarshish. Let me, let me get on a ship. And we come right back to where we started from, from the ship to the ocean, from the ship to the ocean, to the belly of a fish, spit out on shore, and now God says, are you ready for your mission? Because, I mean, you, we can do this again, but you're going to end up right back here. And sometimes we find ourselves in similar situations. And the message then is very simple and very powerful. And the message is, there's a spark here for you. There's a spark that's been waiting from the beginning of time for you and only you to unlock. No one else can do it. You are needed to do it. So you can run away, but you need to come back and do it. Run away, it's back. It might be a person, it might be a relationship, it might be a thing, it might be a place, whatever it is. Whatever noun we're talking about, a, plur- a person, a place, or a thing, right? There's a spark there for you. Once we've uncovered the spark, then we don't need to engage in that at that point. But as long as we're, we're in that space, there is a spark to unlock. And by the way, I alluded to this a moment ago, but let me just emphasize this. Only the soul that's meant to elevate that spark can elevate that spark. No one else can. And the best example I can give is... Hold on a second here. You may know where I'm going with this. A key fob. To a minivan. No, a key... Well, yes, but... A key fob, okay? Key fob. So I can go out to the, I'm not going to do it now, but I can go out to the street or even from my house and I can hit, I could hit lock. Let me see if, let me see if I can hear it. Yeah, I heard it. I don't know if you guys heard it. Um, yeah, so I can lock and unlock my car with this guy from right here, right? That's, that's, uh, that's how it's locked and unlocked. But this won't unlock your car, hopefully. And yours, your key fob won't unlock my car, hopefully, right? I don't, I, I don't know how the technology, whatever, it doesn't matter. The point is like this, that only I, only my fob can unlock my car. So each one of us has a fob, we call that the soul. My soul can unlock certain sparks in the world. And it has, from before it comes down to earth, it has a checklist. 
of all the sparks that my soul is meant to, to uncover and to reclaim and to reconnect. That's my mission in life. This is how the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, the great Kabbalist, explains life. This is probably the most systematic way of, of understanding the journeys, the travels, the missions that we have, etc. It's, it's very, very well explained and, and, and fleshed out. And hopefully, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like summarizing it, but hopefully it's coming across. Every single person, so there are sparks that need to be lifted up. By the way, the culmination of which, again, is Mashiach. But sparks need to be reclaimed and uplifted and reconnected. That's our job. Every, so that collectively. Individually, everyone has a certain allotment of sparks. Not just, you know, 50, but specific 50 or maybe 1,000. Whatever the number is. I don't know the number. But everyone has specific sparks that they can unlock and only they can unlock. How many times do you see the Rebbe speaking about this or in letters where the Rebbe encourages people and says, no one else who's ever existed or who will ever exist can do what you can do and what you're needed to do. So don't tap out. You can't tap. We need you here. Don't give up on life. We need you here. Because no one else can do what you can do. No one else can do what you are needed to do. More than can do. You're needed to do this. God has sparks that are waiting. And the only one that has the fob is you. So don't go anywhere with that, with that, with that fob. Let's go. Unlock the sparks. Of course, this gets into to ideas of reincarnation. And if you've taken my class on reincarnation, you know we talk about sparks. Unfulfilled sparks and how there are, there are chances. But let's not think about reincarnation. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's get our sparks right now. Right? So everyone has sparks. And so what he's saying here in our text is the following, which is really beautiful. What he's saying is that you have this light of Malchut. Not the light of Tohu. Not the, chaos, not the sparks themselves. But the, the Tikkun light. The world of repair light. Not the chaos light. The light that comes after the chaos. The normal, when I say normal, I mean the ordinary, progressive, step-by-step, tzimtzum, tzimtzum, Symptom, the light is diminished and diminished. Not the big light that, that blasts everything out, but the, the light that's diminished step by step into, that comes into this world. And what's the point? The light comes into this world to give us the energy to reclaim the sparks. The light comes into the world. We have a world of tikkun, of repair. For what? Tikkun. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention. Tikkun olam. I mentioned it before, but I didn't connect the dots. Let me connect this last dot. Why is this work called Tikkun? What are we repairing? The sparks. The, the shards, the broken shards, the sparks. That's exactly what Tikkun is. Tikkun is to reclaim the sparks, that the pieces of, whole, of, 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 the, the, of the greatest divine energy that fell to the lowest bases. Tikkun means to find them collect them, and reconnect them. That's what repair is. It's like, again, using the crude analogy of the broken glass. Imagine, if you could, if you, I don't even know if it's possible. Imagine 
you dropped a bowl, a glass bowl, and it broke into a hundred pieces. Let's make it manageable, maybe. A hundred pieces. Okay. Imagine the task of picking up each piece, identifying it, sorting it, separating it out from any dirt or whatever, and then the process of putting it back together again. That's tikkun. That's repair. Literally, that is what repair means. That's repair. Yeah. Donna, yeah. Is the jigsaw puzzle ever used as an analogy? No. But that might just because that might just be because maybe they didn't have jigsaw puzzles back then. I don't know when jigsaw puzzles were uh, were first um, on the scene. I don't know. I'm not saying they weren't, by the way. I'm saying I don't know. I'm pleading the uh, the I don't know card, which is true. I'm not right. So I don't know when that is. But no, Kabbalists speak about light and vessels and sparks and broken shards. That's the language of the mystics, right? So we have this state of just powerful light and then the brokenness and our job is to fix it and literally that's everyone has the same job but different sparks to fix and that's why we need everybody everybody needs to be part of it because everybody plays a role here's how the Rebbe said this birth is God saying you matter that's it if you're here you matter you're needed. You're not, no one is unnecessary. No one is like, well, you know, Bob. We don't need Bob. Of course we need Bob. Bob's here. Bob has sparks to, to, to collect and to, and to heal. Latakain, to fix. Tikkun olam means to fix the broken pieces, the broken shards, to reclaim the sparks, to sift um, sparks from earth and to lift them back up to a beautiful place. This is why, for example, the Rebbe said that we have to be there for everybody to, to spread this message to everybody. Like the Rebbe said, there are people who are in prison. And people who are in prison might feel like their life is over. And the truth is that prison is not a Jewish concept. Because you're essentially, you know, curtailing the ability for a person to do in this world. But the Rebbe said, go into the prisons. And go share this message that you have a purpose. And find the sparks where you are. And you know who did that? Another guy who was in prison once. You know what his name was? Joseph. Remember Joseph? From the biblical story? Joseph was in prison. And, and, and you can imagine how bad his life was. Or he might have felt that it was bad. And the Torah tells us one day the butler and the baker of Pharaoh are also in prison. And they had a bad dream. And he says to them, why do you guys look so sad? They said, well, we had bad dreams. He says, tell me. Let's see if I can help. And the rest is history. He becomes the guy who can interpret dreams. And then Pharaoh needs someone to interpret dreams. So he pulls him out of prison. And then he gives him a job as the second in command. And the rest is history. And it all begins because even in prison, Joseph felt that he had a purpose. That there was something there that he could do. Even if it was to help someone else who was there. Right? Not like the most magnificent thing. What was his spark? To help someone who was struggling with a bad dream. That to him was meaningful. That was his purpose in that moment, that morning. 
It says it was a morning. He woke up. They woke up. They were in a bad mood. He said, what's wrong? The Rebbe pointed out. Who asked somebody, why do you look sad today in prison? Why do you look sad? Because I'm in prison. You're in prison. We're all in prison. He was so sensitive, Joseph was, that he could tell that they were a little bit more sad this morning than yesterday. And so he said, Why today are your faces so sad? Even though you can imagine everyone was kind of sad in ancient Egypt prisons. But Joseph knew that wherever he was, there was a spark. There was something to elevate, something to help and to fix and to do and to to add light to. So I'm bringing the kind of like a, um, the example of, of that to, to just demonstrate that everywhere we are, even if we think like, well, there's nothing to do here. If you're there, there's something to do. And not only that, there's something to do. If you're there, it means that there's something that you, you specifically need to do. I was just, what did I see recently? I have to share this with you. I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, was it in the story? The weekly story of the Rebbe? No. Um, maybe. I'm trying to remember the details. Oh, I actually have it. Let me see something. This is a story, I'm, I'm not going to give you the full, all, all, all the details, um, just I'll give you the punchline. Essentially, this father was struggling with his daughter, he was going through a difficult time with his daughter, not personally, but his daughter was going through a difficult time, and he was struggling with how to help her. And this father didn't know what to do, so he turned to a rabbi that he knew, who was a Chabad rabbi. And the Chabad rabbi asked if he could ask the Rebbe, and he said yes, yeah. so he, he turned to the Rebbe with a question. He waited, uh, when the Rebbe finished davening, when he was walking from the synagogue out, so he stood at the side, trying to catch the Rebbe's attention, and the Rebbe looked at him, and like, kind of like saying, you know, how can I help you? And then he asked the question. I'm going to read from this Rabbi Kaplan, Rabbi Nachum Kaplan, Okay. He says, I came over to the Rebbe and posed the father's question. Listen to the answer. The Rebbe replied, God gives parents the strength and the ability to cope with issues such as these. God never places burdens upon people that they can't handle. So they should decide what to do and trust that God will guide them on the right path. And to me, it's so powerful and it means something related to today's topic. That these parents... Facing that challenge, have the specific tools to deal with that challenge. Maybe another set of parents couldn't. But the fact that this challenge came to these parents means that these parents have the ability to handle and to overcome those challenges. And I was reading it yesterday in Shul and I immediately, you know, right after davening, I I ran over to Leah and I gave it to her and I'm like, you know, this is so, for parents, it's so, for anybody, it's so powerful, the idea that what you need to deal with, specifically, is what you are, you have been blessed with the ability specifically to deal with that. Such a powerful realization, and a powerful gift of a blessing of strength. 
And I think really it aligns with what we're saying right now. That every one of us has a soul that can unlock sparks. And if, it's, if you're facing that spark, if you're in that, sh- you're in that space, it means that you have the key to unlock it. You may not want to, you might want to be elsewhere, but if you're there, even in prison, even Joseph in prison, there are sparks that he needed to do, that he needed to uncover, that no one else could. And so getting back to our text, we're talking about Malchut, which is the energy of God that's not the chaotic energy. Malchut is not chaotic, it's the Shekhinah. It's the progressive energy. It's the the light of God that comes down step by step, orderly fashion. Light that works with the vessel, not that overpowers the vessel. That was the world of chaos. This is the world of Tikkun we're talking about here. But why does the light come down? Why Why does our soul come down in an orderly progressive state? To lift up those sparks that fell from the, the realm of chaos. So the descent, the light coming down, is in order to uncover even greater light and unleash it for us and the world at large. And so again, let's, let's remember what the point of, of this text and today's discussion. I mean, there's a lot of points that we can, we can take inspiration from, I think, a lot of these ideas. But I want to focus in on this idea. That even in a dark world, even in a world that appears to be dark and broken and lowly and maybe hopeless, we need to know that there is the greatest light in the darkest of spaces. The greatest potential in the places that seem to have the greatest despair. When things look dark, Kabbalah says, Judaism says, Keep on looking. Find the light. Find the spark. And we have the ability to find it. Because if we're seeing the darkness, we also have the glasses to be able to see the light. We just have to know how to, we just have to want to put them on and have the courage to put put on the glasses to find the light that's inside the dark spaces. But that's why it's happening. It's not happening just for the sake of darkness. It's happening for the sake of the light. And if you and I are in that space, then we need to be the ones that find it. We can't rely on anybody else. It's like the story of Pinchas in the Torah, where he sees something wrong. And he says to Moses, isn't this wrong? Shouldn't shouldn't somebody do something about it? And Moses says to Pinchas, go ahead. You're You're the one that sees it? Correct it. I'm not going to get into the details of what it was because that would take us off topic a little bit or off track a little bit. But the point is that our task is to fix the world. And which parts of the world? The world is so big. Fix, start with the part of the world that's under our feet. Start with where we are today, right now. And then you might find yourself, well, there's... I'm in a place right now, there's nothing, that I can't do anything here. That's exactly where you need to look. In the places that don't seem like they have any light, they have the biggest light. Because the great, I said this before, the greatest light falls in the darkest spaces. Can you imagine how strong of a soul Joseph had to be to be able to find light even in that situation? And you know what that tells us? 
someone who is in a difficult situation, how much power they have, even if they don't know it yet. You tell someone, go, or you tell yourself, or tell someone else, going through a difficult space, do you know how much God believes in you? Do you, do you know how much strength you have? The fact that you're in this challenge means that God trusts you and entrusts you with the task of finding the light. God knows that you can. God know. You want to say hi first? Okay. God know. There you go. Okay. God knows that you have. You and I have the ability, and God puts us exactly where we need to be. So there's two options in life, right? We can think that things are accidental, and we can live life, you know, grumpy. Like, why is this happening? You know, I can't believe it. It's always this and that or that. <laughs> like Growly Pete, right? It's a kid's movie reference, whatever. Right, or, or... If any Trolls 2 fans, you know what I'm talking about, but that's another, that's another, that's another class. Or, or we can recognize that this world, if we had the right infrared lenses, we wouldn't look and see the world and its ugliness. We would see sparks and the biggest light in the darkest places. If we had the right glasses, we would see it. And then we would see that there's amazing light, potential, sparks, fragments of, of, of the world of, of chaos right in front of us. And we have the fob to open it. All we need to do is hit unlock and access it and elevate it. I don't, I'm not trying to minimize the effort, but it's just a decision. Yes, I'm going to do this. This is, this is where I am, why I am, and who I am. And no one else can do it. This is me, and I'm empowered to do it. It shouldn't make us feel lonely. Like, I have to do it myself. It shouldn't make us, and we don't have to do it ourselves. We can, you know, we can make a, we can get a team together, but it shouldn't make us feel lonely. It should make us feel empowered and entrusted and valuable and necessary. You wake up in the morning, what do I, like, what do I need to do today? What do I need to do today? There's all of this beautiful potential, all of the beautiful light that's stuck in places where it's not revealed. And my job is to reveal the beauty in one more place, another place, another space, another interaction, another person, another meal, another mitzvah. What's not to get out of bed for? It's the greatest, it's the greatest journey of life. Right here. Let's get back inside. I want to do a few more lines. I want to do a few more lines because this is so beautiful. So beautiful, this, this conclusion to this, to this chapter. Okay, here we go. So, oh, so I was, so 288 is Rapach, plus one, plus the Kolel. So sometimes in numerology, you'll add the word itself as another number. So instead of 288, it's 289. 289 is Tariff, which is spoils. So she gives spoils to her household means that Malchut comes down below the soul of the universe. Our soul comes below for the Tariff, the 288 sparks. That's why we're here. In other words, the descent is for a greater ascent. We come down into the dark space to find greater light. The greatest light. The greatest light is not up there anymore. It's in the lowest of spaces. All right, page 102. Let's finish this chapter. Malchut itself 
is the beneficiary as well. In other words, the energy that comes below is not just there to be of service, but in the process of being of service and, and, and releasing the greatest light, it itself benefits. Are you with me on that? It's not just selflessly, you know, like, let's just speak about, forget Malchus for a second, let's you and I. It's not like we're running around and, and, and elevating sparks and we get nothing from it. No, we're also the beneficiaries. Being granted, Malchut benefits from this as well. Not that it does it because of that, but it does benefit. In what way? Being granted additional light, additional illumination. Illumination, or in the original, it's light. It's granted more light than, than it started. Until the point of Mashiach, until in the Messianic era, it will attain the position of a woman of valor is the crown of her husband, Eshet Chayil Ateret Baila. A woman of valor is the crown of her husband. Woman of valor is a euphemism for Malchut, feminine, right? The feminine Shrina, the divine presence that comes below. And nowadays, the Malchut is the lowest sphera that comes below, like the soul, like, which is also feminine, Nishama, that comes below, and it seems like it's got a rough gig. But are you kidding? Rough gig? It's touching the, the ultimate purpose of all creation. In coming below, it hits the purpose of, of why everything was created in the first place. And thus, it ultimately rises to the top of all the Sfirot. Are you with me on what I'm saying? Malchut is the lowest of the Sfirot now. And it comes below into the world, and the soul also comes below. But in when Mashiach comes, it will be revealed that Malchut is actually on top. And that's why it says, a woman of valor is the crown of her husband. Not literally woman and husband, but the feminine Malchut is the crown, will be on top of her husband, the other Sfirot, which are considered to be more masculine in nature. So Malchut today is the lowest of the Sfirot that goes below. But what does it do below? It accesses the greatest light and creates the greatest transformation and the greatest delight above. And thus Malchut in, in truth is really higher than everything else. But we don't see it. We don't see it. We don't see it today. When will we see it? When Mashiach comes. Because then, not that then it happens, it's happening right now. That Malchut is the greatest. That the soul below is the greatest. But we don't see it. When Mashiach comes, the truth will be revealed that Malchut, the woman of valor, is the crown of her husband, is actually on top. I.e. Malchut will bequeath to the higher Sfirot. In other words, Malchut will be the giver, not the recipient, it will be the giver. As the verse reads, it shall come to pass on that day, that day meaning when Mashiach comes, that living water shall go forth from Jerusalem, which is again a euphemism for Malchut, half to the eastern sea, the sea of Chachma, which means that Malchut will be giving to Chachma. Chachma is the first and Malchut is the last of the ten. And when Mashiach comes, Malchut will be giving waters to Chachma. Who will be feeding Chachma? Malchut, the lowest, because the lowest is really the highest. This shall be, he says, at the conclusion of the purifications when Biyah shall have been purified. In other words, when all of purifies is that word I told you before, Birurim, when everything has been separated, when all the sparks have been separated out, 
and every th- all, all of the sparks have been reunited, at that point, Malchut will be revealed as really the highest energy because of its incredible function. So what is, I mean, there's so many lessons, the practical lessons that we can draw from this, but really the core idea here is that that which seems the lowest is really the highest. And sometimes we might go kicking and screaming into a situation, but there's the, best, the, the, the greatest potential there. The things that seem darkest really have the most light. A descent going down is for the ascent going up. It's all the same concept using different words. But what does it mean for you and I? If we're facing a struggle and a challenge, we have to know that we were put in this because God has trust in us, God has faith in us, that we can withstand and overcome and find the purpose of this interaction. The Rebbe once told somebody who asked who was in the hospital. And they said they want to get better so they can leave the hospital. The Rebbe said, when you finish your mission in the hospital, you'll leave the hospital. Another, you with me on that? I should probably explain it. The Rebbe is basically saying that you're meant to meet someone there or do something there. There's a spark in the hospital that you need to lift up. So find the spark, do your mission, and then you won't need to be there anymore. That's, that's how the mystics look at the world. That's a powerful perspective. When I'm in, a, when, I, when I feel like I'm in a negative spot, I need to know, not I should pretend it's not negative, I have to know it's negative, but know that in every negative there's light, and if the lower it is, the greater the light, so that there's, there's a big light here. And now how do I find it? And the moment I find it and separate it out, the darkness is gone. It's, it's, it's gone. Right? I've, I've taken out the soul of this thing, so it can't exist on its own anymore, number one. Number two, its purpose is fulfilled, so it doesn't have to be dark to hide the light anymore because the light's already out. So then the challenge is gone. So that's, that, this is a meditation for how we can live life. We are spark seekers. Our job is to find the light, reclaim it, polish it up, reconnect it. The light is in the darkest of spaces. And when we do that, that fulfills the purpose why the Shekhinah came below, why our soul came below to find this light. And when that happens, it causes the greatest delight for us and for God because we found the light in the dark space. We are like, I don't like saying it exactly like this, like that parrot that speaks, like the talking bird which you didn't expect a bird to talk and say human language, a human being that finds light in the spaces of darkness. That shouldn't happen. When it does happen, I mean, it should, but at first glance, it doesn't look like it should happen. When it happens, it creates the greatest joy above and the greatest joy below, and that is what brings Mashiach. May we continue to do our job May we recognize that each day is an opportunity to find more light. May we recognize that the darkest of challenges only exist to bring out the light within us and within the world. And may we be committed to never giving up and to never accepting the status quo. We should be proud of who we are and where we are. Treasure the opportunities and recognize that each one of us is essentially valuable and no one else can do what we are needed to do. Thank you for joining me today for Kabbalah and Coffee. 
I want to wish everybody a wonderful Shavuot, a very happy holiday, which begins tonight at sundown. Today is day 49 of the Omer. Tonight is the 50th day. It's the day that we got the Torah. It begins tonight. The tradition is we stay up as late as we can studying Torah. For those in Atlanta, join me tonight at 10.30. We have classes on the hour at 10.30, 11.30, 12.30. Stay as long or as short as you'd like. We have cheesecake and coffee and tea, whatever your preference is. And then tomorrow, we have services in the morning with Ten Commandment reading and in the afternoon, 10 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. So join us. You don't have to come to both, although you could. But join us for that. But the, uh, the celebration with uh, you know, the community and with the food is going to be in the afternoon. Tomorrow morning will also be the service with the Torah reading of the Ten Commandments. Once again, do a mitzvah today, tomorrow, every day, multiple mitzvot with a specific intention for the blessings that we all need as a people, as a world, as a nation. And may we indeed see the light that's in the darkness immediately. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. Beautiful, beautiful class. Thank you, thank you. I cried. Thank <laughs> you. The story of Joseph in, in, the, in the jail, it's, it's really so inspired. Thank you very much. My pleasure, my pleasure. He I, is I an have, inspiration. I have, I have a question. Sure. You, you uh, in the mail, it says that this, is, this year is the 33333? Yes. Wow. Yeah, it's 3,333 years, yes, which is highly significant. The Talmud says that the Torah was given in the third month from the Exodus, right, Nisan um, E.R. Sivan, to the people that have three, Kohen, Levi, Yisrael. The Torah that is comprised of three parts, um, Torah, Nevi'im, Ksuvim, the, the five books, the books of the prophets and the books of Scripture. So threes are very much intertwined. Yeah, so it's um, it's very it's very connected. So three 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 is highly significant. So we should have all the blessings from that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Of course, great to see you, Mariana, and Donna, and Richard, and Matt, and Alex, and Joy, and Sandrine, and Adam. It's great to see you all. Have a wonderful holiday. Have a great day. We'll see you guys soon. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.